Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. That's where we'll, we will be today, beginning in verse 11. But first, you know, I was, I was thinking recently of uh, some advances in medical technology. And uh, I'm sure we're all aware of the, the procedure of a skin graft. Uh, it's, when, it's when doctors take skin from another part of the body and, and apply it to, another, uh, to a part of the body that's been damaged or that needs repair. And in some cases, these skin grafts, they come from our own bodies at times. Like, uh, for instance, I know some who've had a surgery recently on their leg and they had to, to take skin and to apply it to the back of their leg just, just so that it could be repaired properly after the surgery. And so in some cases, the skin graft takes place from within our own body. And then, interestingly enough, in other cases, the skin graft can actually be given to us from a donor. It can, we can actually receive a, 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 a skin graft from another donor who is giving, uh, who has given, uh, donated their skin for our purposes. And in fact, technology is advancing so much today that there are even such things as skin grafts uh, onto humans from animals, from uh, comparable animals that, that may work uh, as a, as a effective repair of the damage to one's skin. And so technology is advancing more and more and we're, we're able to take skin from a, pre, from a different source and apply it to a new place and it's able to graft in. It's able to mesh in with the human body and to be repaired. Now, of course, the best repair of, of a scar or of, of a tear in a human is to use one's own skin. The natural skin that allows for the, the skin graft to work most effectively and outside donors or even animals, if needed, those those uh, skin donations, they, they can work and do work, but not always as effective as the natural skin graft. Now, why am I talking about skin grafts? Well, today in our study in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about a grafting. In Romans 11, Paul isn't speaking of a skin graft. That was a procedure that he knew nothing about. But in Romans 11, he's going to speak of an aspect of horticulture, of taking care of trees, particularly an olive tree. And the Apostle Paul is going to speak of branches off having fallen off the olive tree, being grafted back in to the tree. He's going to speak of branches that have been cut off and are laying fallow on the ground and other branches from wild olive trees, both of which are able to be grafted back in to the one olive tree of God. What is this olive tree? What is this grafting process that we're talking about? Well, that is the subject of our text in Romans 11. And for those of you that have not been with us in some time, we are in the midst of a series. The series is entitled God's Plan for Israel. God's Plan for Israel. And we are in the second to last part of this series in the book of Romans. We're in part nine. Next week, we'll, we'll deal with our final uh, section, part ten. But part nine today is entitled Grafted in branches of privileges of privilege excuse me grafted in branches of privilege 
branches of privilege. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. Would you stand with me as we read the Bible text uh, this morning? Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. We're going to continue to verse uh, 24. And I brought uh, my non-preaching Bible today, so I I have my study Bible instead of my uh, thinner, more uh, stylish preaching Bible. So excuse the bulky Bible. Romans 11, verse 11 to 24, Paul writes this. I say then, have they, Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, verse 19, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? You may be seated. Verse 11, Paul writes, I say then, Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Paul has been saying this throughout Romans 9, throughout Romans 10, and here we are in Romans 11. He said it time and time again, and the theme is this. Israel has fallen, but Israel is not knocked out. When I was coming home uh, from, uh, from Haiti, at my, the missions trip, and then uh, via Atlanta, I was at a theology conference. We were flying back, and uh, on the plane was, uh, was the, uh, you had, the, you had the, the TV right in front of your face there. So it was kind of nice. You were able to watch TV uh, on your trip, on the five-hour trip home from Atlanta to L.A. Uh, of course, I was too cheap to rent the $3 headphones uh, so I, c- I could hear the TV. So instead, I just watched TV and tried to, you know, look at their, their mouths a little bit. Um, that's how cheap I am. 
But I, I got tired of trying to read lips. And so instead, I just turned it to some sports where I kind of knew what was happening. And I, I came across uh, boxing. I'm not a big boxing fan, but th- there, was some, there was a good fight going on. So I decided to watch it. And, you know, if there's one thing you may or may not know about boxing, uh, the, the, the two uh, men who are opposing one another... They can knock each other to the ground one, even two times and still be in the fight, depending on if if it's within the same round. But once they get knocked down a third time in the same round, once they fall three times in the same round, the referee calls the fight. He calls it a TKO, a technical knockout. In other words, so in boxing, you can you can knock your opponent over once. Boom. Knock him over again, boom. But if you knock him over a third time in the same round, that opponent automatically loses the fight. It's called a TKO. Well, in the case of Israel, she's been knocked down. In fact, she's been knocked down a couple times. But Paul is saying quite definitively that there has been no loss of the fight. She's been knocked down once, maybe even twice, but Israel is still competing. She is still, she still has an opportunity to fight back, to get back into favor with her God. Paul says, look, she has fallen hard. And like anyone who's losing a game or a match, you know, there comes a point where Israel starts to look at her opponent and she starts to envy the success of her opponent. There comes a point when you're in a game or a match, where you start to question your own rightful position to even be in the match at all. And in the case of Israel, the more she sees the Gentiles entering into relationship with God, Paul says, the more she becomes jealous of them and wary of her own rightful standing before God. You say, really? Wait a minute. So, so okay, two opponents... We're going to use the opponents loosely here, but two opponents, Jews and Gentiles in the match. And, and, and Paul's basically saying that, look, Israel's been beaten back and the Gentiles have, been, have risen up and God has blessed the Gentiles. And he is he is uh, he's pouring out his goodness upon the Gentiles. We see this as we have all come to faith in Jesus Christ and the, and the churches, the Christian churches spread rapidly throughout the world. So the Gentiles have been lifted up. Israel's been beaten back. And Paul's contention is, is that the one who's losing looks at the one who's winning and starts to envy them. Starts to envy their success. Starts to envy and and be wary of their own ability and their own right standing before God. And we might be wondering, is is that really the case? Is it really true that Israel has done that? Is doing that? I, see, I think we see glimpses of this throughout the Scriptures. We see it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the rich young ruler, uh, you know, he, he asks, and who is, my, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives him a long story about you know, three people who walk by a man in the ditch. And it's only the third and final person, the Samaritan, the half-Jew, back in that day. So they were kind of cast aside. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Certainly didn't like the Gentiles, but definitely didn't like the Samaritans either. So it was only the Samaritan who helped the man in the ditch. 
And so when Jesus asked him, you know, who was it that honored the Lord? Who was it that did good? Who was it that was neighborly toward the man in the ditch? Remember what the rich young ruler said? He said, remember, remember what he didn't say. He didn't even name the Samaritan by his ethnicity. Instead, he said, surely the one who helped him. He couldn't even bring it unto himself to say that a Samaritan had done well. You see, back in Jesus' time, there was competition between ethnicities, between the nations. And the Jewish people were very, uh, by and large, were covetous, were restrictive of what could be godly, of what could be holy, of what could be good. And so the, the rich young ruler, he couldn't even bring himself to say, oh yeah, it was the Samaritan who had helped. He didn't even want to say it. Because for him, godliness and holiness and privilege was restricted to the Jew. We see this uh, in, in Paul's ministry. Remember, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, Paul's going out and he's, he's seeing Gentile after Gentile after Gentile coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But then there's a problem. Some Judeans come to Antioch and to other places and they start telling these new Gentile converts, oh, you're not saved unless you keep the law of Moses. You're not saved unless you do all the things that are distinctly Jewish, like be circumcised, keep the law. You've got to do all those things too. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, this, this isn't right. And so they convene a council in Acts chapter 15. And Paul and Peter and James and the disciples, they all get together and they say, what should we do about this? Is salvation going to be restricted to the Jew only? Is salvation going to be restricted to the Jewish law and circumcision alone? Of course not. And even Paul and Peter have a little bit of a dispute about that in Galatians chapter 2. What's my point? My point is this. In the first century, the Jews were constantly pushing out the other groups from any ability to be holy or to be right or to be good before God. They were pushing them aside and saying, I'm not even going to say the Samaritan can do that. I'm not even going to say those Gentiles can become Christians because first they've got to be circumcised and follow the law and etc., etc. There was competition between ethnicities. There was competition between the races of people. And now we see the Jews, according to Paul, having fallen. Having been knocked down once, maybe twice. And they're looking at the Gentiles and they're saying, how is it? How is it that they appear to be blessed? How is it that the Gentile nations appear to have received a time of flourishing? And yet some, some today would say, well, I, I, don't know of, uh, I don't know about this jealousy thing, Neil, Paul. Uh, you know, Paul, I don't know about this jealousy thing because I don't know any Jewish friends or neighbors who look at me and go, wow, I'm really jealous of your relationship with God. You might think that's kind of a, that's kind of a strange thing to say. But consider this. Consider this. We both read the same Old Testament. Gentile believers and Jews. We both cherish 
the writings and the teachings of the exact same Old Testament patriarchs, prophets, and kings. We both call upon the same Lord. We call upon the Lord God of Israel. Together, we have this in common with Jews. And yet, despite the commonalities that we have with Jews, while reading the same Old Testament, we claim that we found the Messiah in Jesus Christ. We claim that the Old and New Testament evidence, that the evidence for Jesus' Messiahship is huge, it's immense, it's persuasive, and it is. No one can deny the comparisons between the Old Testament prophecies and what Jesus has fulfilled. They see commonality there. But unbelieving Jews pushed, continue to reject that evidence. The Jews look at the Gentile Christians and they see that 300 years since the time of Jesus, Christianity has become the most dominant religion on the planet. In just three centuries, it went from the most uh, ignored and persecuted sect, like a cult, to in 300 years to pervading throughout the Roman Empire. And still today, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. The Jews look at us and, and they see this growth and they see the success and they also see relatively accurate descriptions of Israel, of the church, of the world, and of its coming history, of, 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 its, of its history and of its coming end. Still today, in the 21st century, Christians by and large evidence much more devotion, much more passion, and boast an impressive conversion growth rate. And so, I, I, I give you all this to, to, let us, to let it kind of sink into our minds what Paul thinks when he says the Jews will be provoked to jealousy. It is not that, we don't read Romans 11 and suppose that every Jewish friend and neighbor that we have is looking at you and just is totally jealous of what you have. But I promise you this, they're thinking, they're thinking, how is it that we read the same Old Testament, that we honor the same patriarchs, prophets, and kings? How is it that, that we call upon the same Lord God of Israel, and yet the Jews have experienced unbelievable hardship, trial, difficulty, whereas the Gentiles and the Christian church has experienced, by and large, a flourishing of success, of growth, of expansion. Any reasonable person that would cause them to think twice about the differences between their religion as Jews and those of the Christians. And while I would never expect, I would never expect, and Paul doesn't either, we should never expect our Jewish neighbors to openly admit their jealousy of the Christian church. Neither are we so naive to suppose that they never think twice about the accuracy and the truthfulness of their own beliefs. Elias could give you story after story. Elias, as a Messianic Jew, he could give you story after story of, of other uh, fellow uh, Jewish brothers and sisters who, after having talked with him, have indicated their persuasion that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah and almost their reluctance to do so. And so the point is this. If, 
if among these two groups, Jews and Christians, if among these two groups who call upon the same God, read and cherish the same Old Testament, if one of those groups, the Christians, sees all of its efforts achieving a vastly superior result, whereas the other group sees all of its rigorous efforts achieve, by and large, failure. Is it not reasonable to suppose that the one group on the ground might come to envy the group that appears to have had success? That is Paul's point. And Paul says that God is using... This is... This is don't miss this. God is using... The salvation of the Gentiles, the success of the Christian church to plant the seed of desire back into the hearts of his chosen people, Israel. And the day is soon approaching when that seed of desire will germinate in their heart and result in a harvest of righteousness. Of course, it wasn't always the case that Israel was jealous of the Gentiles. In the time of Abraham, Israel was called to be God's standard bearer to the nations. But she had fallen short of that ideal. And so Paul continues in verse 12 to 15. He writes, Now if their fall, if Israel's fall, is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more Israel's fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Israel was called to bless the world. We see that back in Genesis 12. The commission given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And there have been glimpses of this blessing, no doubt, through Abraham, uh, through Moses, through David and others. But by and large, Israel as a nation has not lived up to its calling as God's chosen people. And yet, the world's been blessed. And yet, the world has been blessed despite Israel's fall. The world has become the, greatest, or the, the recipients of the greatest gift of all time. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And despite the fact that Israel has not lived up to her potential to bless the nations, the nations, the Gentiles, this Christian church has been immensely blessed by the coming of Jesus and His salvation. So Paul's reasoning goes something like this. He says, okay, if Israel has fallen and the world has received the richness of salvation, that is, if the nations have been blessed despite Israel's failure, how much more their fullness. How much more will the nations be blessed when Israel rises up to her rightful place as God's ambassadors to the world? Now, this was no small point for the Apostle Paul to make at the time of his writing. For many Gentile Christians were starting to get the impression that God was done with Israel. That was the impression in the first century. Guess what? That's the impression of many Christians today in the 21st century. Those who espouse uh, what's called covenant theology or replacement theology. To this day, they make the mistake that many of the Gentiles in Rome did. They make the mistake that Israel has fallen and is never to recover. And that the Gentiles have taken over 
all the promises that God has given to Israel. The covenants. We, we don't believe that. Because Paul didn't believe that. He's saying as much in Romans 11. He's saying, look, Israel's fallen and the world's been blessed. How much more when Israel gets up will the world be blessed? But the Roman church, the, the, the Gentiles in Rome, many of them, they looked at Paul and they saw a Jewish man who was primarily focused on evangelizing Gentiles, not Jews. Indeed, many of the Gentiles felt that they themselves, as a result of Paul's ministry, that they had replaced Israel altogether. And indeed, as I said, some Christians believe that today. But Paul is clear. God still has a plan for Israel. In fact, Paul says that his ministry to the Gentiles is in part designed to spur on the Jews' faith in Jesus as Messiah. He says in verse 13, Inasmuch as I, a Jew, Paul's a Jew, Inasmuch as I, a Jew, am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify, that is, I boast about my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, the Jews, and save some of them. So Paul gives evidence that even his emphasis on the Gentiles is meant to pick up his Jewish brethren. Paul knows that his ministry is actually working to draw Israel back to her Lord. And he believes in accordance with Scripture that if the Gentiles have been blessed amidst Israel's failure, the blessing that await the nations when Israel returns to her rightful place as God's ambassadors, that blessing will be unimaginable. And Paul likens that day in verse 13, he likens it as a day that is like life from the dead. Notice what he says at the end of verse 13 there. For, uh, verse 15, excuse me. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Of course, this is a very apropos description of the coming era when Israel is lifted back up. Why? Because the Apostle John in the book of Revelation calls this time the first resurrection in Revelation chapter 20. It's also known as the Millennial Kingdom throughout the Scripture. A time of supreme world blessing and peace in which the curse is lifted and our Messiah Jesus Christ rules over all the earth. And who else? Who else will be at the forefront of the inception and preservation of this kingdom? Revelation 7 says that 144,000 Jews will rise up in faith and will spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. That this massive world evangelization, 144,000 Jews mentioned in Revelation 7, who rise up in faith and go out into all the earth, they will spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the ends of the earth and bring about the beginning of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 19, he, he points to the 12 disciples and he looks at all 12 and he says, you 12 will sit on 12 thrones in that kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, we can, we can analogize all of these, uh, these texts away. We can say, well, Revelation 7 doesn't mean ethnic Jews. And well, Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 28, oh, that doesn't mean that the, the disciples will actually be ruling over others in the kingdom. 
We can analogize all these away or we can actually read them for what they say and realize that Paul and Jesus and John and Peter, just like the prophets and those before them, have all been saying the same thing. That Israel, though they've fallen, they're going to get back up and they're going to bring about the inception and the preservation of the millennial kingdom that the world will enjoy. All those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It will be a time of unparalleled peace, righteousness, and justice, led by Messiah Jesus and His chosen people Israel will help to inaugurate it and sustain it. Verse 12 again, If their fall is riches for the world, which we're experiencing today, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more Israel's fullness. And God, friends, you know, God is even now working to bring about this final day. Paul, like Jesus and those before him, had spoken, have spoken about a believing remnant within Israel that is being consecrated unto the Lord. He calls this group the first fruit in verse 16. Notice verse 16 and following. Paul writes, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, what is going on in this passage here? This is a fascinating uh, portion here in Romans 11. Uh, one that requires uh, some explanation. What, are, uh, what is this metaphor that Paul is speaking of? Well, I want to kind of go through it line by line and, and give uh, what I believe Paul is suggesting here, and then we'll, we'll give some evidence for it. So get out your pen if you've got it, your outline. We're going to fill in the blanks a little bit here first. Uh, what is the first fruit? The first fruit, also known as the dough in some of your uh, translations, is the believing Jewish remnant. The believing Jewish remnant. These are the Jews that Paul has been speaking about, that Jesus spoke about, that are being consecrated, that are being set aside. Paul calls them an Israel within Israel. Okay? A remnant within the nation that are going to usher in uh, Israel's restoration as, as God's chosen people. So we're going we're gonna to put forth this idea that the first fruit, or the dough, is the remnant of Israel. And then secondly, the lump, of course, well, if, 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 if the remnant is believing Israel, then the lump, or the batch, is the nation of Israel. That's who they come from. If the uh, first fruit is holy, or if the dough is holy, so also is the lump, or the batch, from which they come. We'll explain that in just a moment. And then we get to the root. What is the root? Scholars, by and large, agree that the root is either the Abrahamic covenant or the Lord Himself. I tend to lean toward uh, uh, the former there, the Abrahamic covenant, but it, it could just as well be the, the Lord offering His promises, uh, His covenants uh, to, to Israel. Uh, but most specifically, it's probably the Abrahamic covenant there. Again, we'll get to this in just a moment. Next up, we have... Uh, the, the branches, also called the natural branches in chapter 11. This is the Jewish people in general. The Jewish people in general. And finally, we have the wild olive tree, which is the Gentile people in general. The Gentile people in general. Now, you might be saying, well, how, how did I piece all those together? Well, take a look. 
Consider this interpretation and see if this makes some sense as we have been going through this, this passage. Paul's reasoning goes something like this. This is how Paul's thinking. He says, look, if, if God is already setting aside a holy, believing remnant of the Jews, if He's already setting aside the first fruits, the dough, the believing remnant of the Jews, then the nation as a whole from which this remnant has come is not cut off permanently. It has not been cast aside. It remains holy. It remains with potential. It remains with opportunity to be consecrated. And the Lord has a long and a rich heritage with Israel, the root of which goes down deep as far as Abraham. And so the descendants from this great root of Abraham, the branches, still have a role to play in God's future for the world. Paul says the first fruit, the remnant, if they are being consecrated, and they are, as Paul has said, as Jesus has said, and other Peter, if they're being consecrated, then the nation has not been cast aside. And we know the nation has not been cast aside because the roots, the covenants that God has made with Israel go down deep. They can't just be analogized away. They're too literal. Too many centuries of relationship. Those roots go down deep. And so the branches that come up from that root, the Jewish people, they still have a role in God's eternal plan. There's something that's, going, that, that's yet to come for God's chosen people. And Paul is hoping and praying that his audience in Rome and that this audience here today would hear that message would understand it, and would be prepared for it. Now, meanwhile, Paul has freely admitted that the day of Israel's return is not yet here. And so he continues in verse 17. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches." For if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. While the Jewish people have experienced spiritual dryness and withering over the last two millennia, and prior to that even, while the, Jews, while the branches from the root have experienced dryness and withering and have ultimately been cut off, another wild olive tree has risen up and it's been grafted into the natural olive tree's root. What does Paul mean by this? He means that Gentiles, wild, previously alienated from God, have risen up. Gentiles have risen up and become partakers or sharers of the blessings of salvation. Of the blessings of God's kingdom. Of the privilege of being God's representatives on the earth. And they, for a time, for a time, these Gentiles, this wild olive tree, has been grafted into the natural root and for a time has supplanted Israel for a moment as the heralds of God's message, as the ambassadors of the Lord God of Israel. Now, we may 
pause right there for a moment and ask a, a, a prying question that may be looming in some of our minds. Is this metaphor speaking about eternal salvation? Is this metaphor speaking about eternal salvation? There's some who, who they read this metaphor about you know, the natural olive tree. It rises up and the branches are there, the Jewish people, and the branches wither and they, they, they grow dry and they're cut off and they fall to the ground. And then we see another olive tree rise up and we see those branches be grafted in to the natural vine, the natural root, and become uh, sharers in God's plan. And so we might be asking the question, is this, is this strictly speaking about individual salvation, about one's eternal destiny? Uh, I want to be very clear. The answer is no. That's not what's at stake here. That's not what's at stake here. One of the clearest teachings of Scripture is the doctrine of eternal security. Once we're saved, we're always saved. Jesus says this time and time again throughout the Gospel of John. And here in verse 17, notice what Paul writes. He speaks of natural branches being broken off, being cut off. Later on, if you're, if, as we get to verse 21, Paul's going to mention that even the newly grafted in branches, even the newly grafted in members of the tree can be cut off, broken off. And so if, if this metaphor in, in Romans 11, if this were speaking of eternal salvation, then we would have to account for how the wild olive tree gets grafted in and, and even those branches can fall off and how the natural branches can be cut off and fall to the ground. That would seem to suggest a salvation that can be lost and that would not be a salvation that has its roots in the New Testament. So, we're not talking about salvation per se in this metaphor. Eternal salvation is not, what is what is not what is at stake. Instead, Paul is speaking more to the role the branches play in salvation history. He says that healthy branches are those that rightly represent God to the nations, whereas the Lord routinely cuts off the branches that fail to be good ambassadors of the gospel. In, in, in a statement, I, I would say this in your outlines. The branches, the branches, note this, are indicative of having a privileged role as ambassadors of the Lord and His salvation, but in heralding it, in offering it, in representing it. Okay, So branches remain attached to the root so long as they are healthy and properly represent the Lord. They are ultimately cut off when they fail to live up to their God-given role as emissaries of the Gospel. But most notably, and don't miss this, Branches can be grafted in again. We haven't read that yet, but we're about to in the very next verse. Branches can be grafted in again. And that word again that we'll see in just, just a few moments is, is not something that we can just whisk away. Because in Paul's mind, Remember, this is the first century. He's writing to Rome, to the Roman Christians. And you know what Paul's expecting? Paul's expecting Jesus Christ to return at any moment. Paul, Peter, all of the disciples. You read through the writings of the New Testament, you will get the impression that these men and women, the, the members of the church, they were waiting for Jesus to return at any moment. They expected it today even. 
They said it could happen right now as, as Paul's writing this. And so he's saying to the Jews whose branches have fallen off the root, he's saying you can be grafted back in again. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's not saying you can get back into heaven as if you fell out of heaven. He's saying you can come back into the vine and be a proper and a healthy and a, have a privileged role in representing God to the nations. That was Israel's heritage back in Genesis chapter 12. That's what they were commissioned to do. And when they failed to properly represent God, they were cut off and fell to the ground. What's at stake is not one's eternal destiny, but one's role to play in the outworking of human history. Will we be healthy branches and enjoy the privilege of representing God to the world? Or will we dry up and wither and be cut off from the privilege of being God's ambassadors? You see, Israel for two millennia have by and large been cut off. That does not mean that no Jewish person has come to faith in Christ. That doesn't mean that. It simply means that the Jewish people as a whole have been cut off as God's representatives to the world. And Paul says that a new wild olive tree has risen up whose branches have been grafted in to God's olive tree. We, we, you and I, Gentile believers, we are that wild olive tree that Paul writes in, for, in chapter 11. And for a time, we are experiencing great blessing from God and are privileged, privileged to be representatives of the reconciliation that is found in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, as the old adage goes, with great power comes great responsibility. I might add, with great power and privilege comes great responsibility. And Paul warns us not to think too highly of our present position as branches in God's tree. Notice verse 18. He writes, Do not boast against the branches, that is to say the natural branches of Israel, the Jewish people. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Instead, we're to take a more humble approach to our standing before God. And Paul writes of this in verse 19. He says, you will then say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, Paul says, well said. Because of unbelief, they, Israel, were broken off. But you stand by faith, so do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fail severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. That sounds a little scary. Especially scary if it was speaking about eternal salvation. But that's not what Paul's point is here. That's not, that's not Paul's topic. That's not his theme right here. He says in verse 19, you will say then, you Gentiles, we will say, okay, Paul, so what you're telling us is that the branches were broken off, the natural branches of Israel were broken off that we might be grafted in. Paul says, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, think about that for a moment. Read carefully, 
there's a, there's a number of things that that does. Number one, number one, it makes us humble. We realize that wow, we've only been grafted in. We've only been given the privilege of as a as a Christian church, as a part of the body of Christ. We've been given a privilege for a time to represent God to the world, to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. We've been given a, a segment of time to do this as Gentile believers. So, number one, it, it, it breeds in us humility that we have a great responsibility. But secondly, read carefully, verse 19 develops a very interesting motif and one that I'm not, I'm not going to go to my grave on, but an, an interesting motif, namely, that the tree, note carefully, the tree can only support an established number of branches. Read it again. Read verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. You see, this motif, this, this theme, and that statement in particular, speaks strongly, strongly against the idea that Paul's talking about salvation. Because salvation is available to all. Some, some people don't need to fall out of heaven so that others can get in. You, know? <laughs> you don't need to pop the bubble and drop a few so that others can you know, hop on in. That, that's not what salvation is all about. Salvation is offered to all by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul's not talking about salvation. He's talking about being a branch. He's talking about being a representative, having a privileged role in the outworking of God's economy, of, of God's world, of human history. And in verse 19, Paul says clearly, speaking on behalf of the Gentiles, he says, so what you're saying, Paul, is branches have been broken off so that I might be grafted in. If only a limited number of healthy branches can exist in God's olive tree, then it may well be said that this tree represents privilege and responsibility, not heaven or hell. You see, we've been grafted in precisely because Israel has fallen off for a time. And now we are representatives of God, His ambassadors to the world right now for a time. But that role has only been given to us because some fell out of that role. Because some fell off the tree. They dried and withered and were cut down. And Paul warns us. He says... You better be careful because what happened to Israel can happen to you, Gentiles. Continuing on in verse 20, he says, Because of unbelief, they were broken off, right? Israel failed her Lord for a time. He says, And you, Gentiles, you stand by faith. Do not be haughty then, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity but toward you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. Now, notice the conditions here. Notice the conditions. These are astounding conditions. In red, well, in blue we see the warning, right? Here's the warning. This is a warning to you and to me. This is a warning to Gentile believers. Here's the warning, friends. He may not spare you either. God may not spare you. That sounds scary. He says at the end of verse 22, you also will be cut off if you fail to do these things in red. 
that's a scary uh, statement. And we're starting to think, well, what does he mean? Does he mean hell? What does he mean? Notice, notice the conditions in red. The conditions are that you stand by faith. Stand by faith. There's not, there's not a mentioning of, of that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's implied. But now it's a matter of standing in your faith. Faithful is what Paul's driving at. Secondly, that you're not haughty, that you're not proud, that you don't look at those who fell and say, look at, look at that, they failed miserably. I can do a better job. No, he says, don't be haughty, be humble. In fact, fear God. Show great humility toward the Lord. And finally, he says, continue in His goodness. Continue in righteousness. Continue in faithfulness, in perseverance, in holiness, in righteousness. If you don't meet the red conditions, you will incur the words in blue. You'll be cut off. You will not be spared. I'm not talking about hell, Paul says. I'm talking about losing a privileged position as God's emissary to the world. You see, we don't often think about this in our day-to-day Christian walk. You know, we, you know we, we look at our churches and our pastors today and say, come on, just give me three points and uh, get me out of here and tell me to do good. Um, that's not how I preach, as you probably know. Uh, this, is, this is real. You, Gentile Christians, you are now God's representatives to the world. You have this for a time. You've had this now for two millennia. You will not have this forever. The Jews, by and large, have been cut off, fallen to the ground. And you too, if you do not remain healthy, if you do not remain in God's goodness, if you do not remain humble, if you do not stand by faith and fear God, representing Him well, if we fail this, this moment of privilege, we too will be cut off. We won't go to hell, but we will lose out on the privileged role of being God's ambassador to the world. Tom Constable writes this. He says, look, friends, the the positions are reversible. The positions are reversible. Gentiles can become objects of God's sternness and Jews can can, can become the object of His kindness. This depends on their responses to God. Their response determines whether God will spare them or cut them off. And the Scripture bears out this fact that Quite frankly, the the, the privileges of the Gentiles will one day reach its climax. The Bible calls this the fullness of the Gentiles. You may have heard that phrase many times in the New Testament. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God's favor will return to Israel. And she will return to her rightful place as God's representatives to the world. It is on this point that Paul ends his discussion of the olive tree in verse 23. He writes this, And they also, Israel, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these Jews, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Israel 
will be grafted in again, Paul says. She will return to her rightful place as a vessel through which God's blessing comes to the nations. If God can, for a time, use a wild olive tree to accomplish His purposes, how much more so can He use the natural branches? The psalmist has a prayer that speaks to this issue. Foreseeing the the dryness and the withering of the branches of Israel, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 80. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. This is the cry of Israel. A cry 3,000 years ago when the psalmist foresaw the branches withering and dying and being burned and cut down and thrown into the fire. And he's begging the Lord to pick Israel back up. To graft the branches in again. That it might come through the root of Abraham that it might extend over all the world and be a blessing to the nations. Friends, what's the point of today's message? Remember your place in salvation history. We were once wild by nature. And our present blessings have only been realized because of Israel's fall, because of Jesus' offer of salvation to all of us. But we must be diligent to stand in this faith. If we shrink back, we will be cut off. Not cut off from heaven, but cut off from privilege as a healthy branch in God's olive tree. And for as long as the Lord gives us opportunity, let us live humbly and becoming of our privileged role as ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us fulfill our part in salvation history that when the baton is passed again, to Israel, we can have confidence at our Lord's appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for uh, this message. A difficult one, Lord, no doubt. But one that we can profit greatly from. Father, we realize, we realize our role in salvation history. We are so privileged By and large, as as, as Gentiles here today, Lord, we've been grafted in. Grafted into a root that was not ours. But Father, You've sent Your Son, Jesus, to die for us, to forgive us of our sins, and to give us the opportunity for everlasting life to all who believe in Him for it. And Lord, we've been grafted in for a time And now we are Your representatives and we ask, God, that You would help us by Your Spirit
to represent You well. Because we know those who have come before us. We know many have been cut off. But we also know that You're a God of mercy. And that You are able and willing. Indeed, it is in the destiny of the Jewish people to be grafted in again, to return to their rightful place of privilege, and to bring about the inception and the preservation of Your kingdom. Father, in the meantime, while we have this privilege in part, let us play our part well. May You help us to represent You well to the nations. That on the last day, You would look upon us and say, well done, good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.